Well, over recent weeks in the Sunday online services, we've been looking at the first six chapters of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And that means that today we come to a bit of a gear shift, because as we move into chapter seven, uh, we move into a very different section uh, of the book. Uh, chapters one to six were kind of court scenes. Uh, we were charting the events of Daniel and his three friends in the royal court of Babylon. Uh, they'd been taken there as exiles from Jerusalem following the Babylonian conquest. We're, we're kind of 600 years before Christ. But chapters 7 to 12, very different. They're prophetic, they're visionary, and at points, quite frankly, uh, they're, they're just weird. Uh, and that's why many sermon series on the book of Daniel end uh, at chapter 6. Uh, we didn't want to do that. Uh, we wanted to press on into these slightly stranger chapters out of a conviction that uh, all of the Bible has things to tell us uh, about God and about the Christian faith. But of course, that doesn't mean that every bit of the Bible is equally easy to read and to understand. Um, hence this little bit of an introduction uh, before the reading. So chapters one to six uh, tell us the challenges that Daniel faced in the royal court and what it was that he did in response to those challenges. What I think chapters 7 to 12 are going to show us is, is how he managed to act as he did, what it was that stood behind uh, his behaviour, his convictions as it were. The style of the chapters is apocalyptic. Uh, that kind of means four things. Uh, first, it means that these chapters describe the end times, uh, the final events of human history. Second, it means that they contrast a period of, of conflict with a final eternal rule of peace. Uh, thirdly, that they do so in language that is full of imagery, uh, vivid and complex. And finally, that the point of them is to help believers to stand firm uh, in present struggle. Uh, one of the reasons I think that people struggle with apocalyptic literature is that they, they kind of get too close to it. They, they, they focus too much on the individual detail. Um, and uh, that can become confusing. Uh, rather like getting too close to a painting. Uh, look at the image on the screen now. It just looks like a mess, uh, sort of a, a whirl of, uh, of fuzzy images that are hard to make head or tail of. And of course what you need to do is, is stand back and see the whole picture. Then it becomes clearer, like this. I guess you could say that this literature needs to be felt more than it does to be analysed in detail. It's not a puzzle book that we have to crack. It's much better to try and sense the emotional mood that it creates in us as we read. And if all of that is beginning to sound like tremendously hard work and you're beginning to wonder whether you want to bother, then let me point out that it is these latter chapters in the book of Daniel that the writers of the New Testament kept referring to. Oh, that there are six or seven times as many references uh, to, these to this final half of the book, 
as there are to the first half. In fact, this one chapter, chapter 7, that we're about to have read, um, has um, four times as many references as the whole of chapters 1 to 6 combined. In other words, the writers of the New Testament clearly thought that, that what we have here in chapters 7 through to 12 has lots to tell us about Jesus and about being a Christian believer. But none of that makes it easy. Uh, so before Ralph Lee uh, reads the chapter for us, why don't I lead us in a prayer? And then as he reads, uh, let's see what, this, what impact this chapter makes upon us. Let me pray. Almighty God, you do tell us that every part of the Bible is written for our instruction and for our good. And we want to ask you to help us to understand what it is you have to say to us here in Daniel chapter 7. And as we read some strange imagery, help us to do more than absorb the words. Help us to engage with the spiritual realities of which they speak. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the first year of King Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night I looked and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. I was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, it crushed and devoured its victims, and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority 
but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in my spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me, and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four great kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom, and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that had crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favour of the saints of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Uh, Ralph, thanks very much indeed for that. Now, having heard that reading, um, if any of the younger ones uh, want to get going on uh, the activities that uh, they may have seen, uh, Darren again has supplied a, a lovely worksheet uh, for you to be grappling with, uh, then uh, uh, now's the time to do that. If um, you're a fan of the musical Hamilton, you may remember that uh, early in the show, uh, Alexander Hamilton uh, seeks a little advice from a man called Aaron Burr. Uh, the dialogue goes something like this, uh, forgive me if I don't sing it. So how do you do it? How'd you graduate so fast? It was my parents' dying wish before they passed. You're an orphan, of course, I'm an orphan. Gee, I wish there was a war, then we could prove that we're worth more than anyone bargained for. Can I buy you a drink? That would be nice. While we're talking, let me offer you some free advice. Talk less. What? Smile more. Huh? 
Don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. You can't be serious. You want to get ahead? Yes. Fools who run their mouths off wind up dead. And so begins a theme that runs all the way through the musical. For while Hamilton is passionate, Burr is pragmatic. Where Hamilton nails his colours to the mouth, has, has the courage of his convictions, Burr waits and watches and backs whoever seems to be winning. Well, we've already seen in chapters 1 to 6 that uh, Daniel would uh, have no truck with the Aaron Burr school of diplomacy. Now, Daniel is passionate. He's resolute. He absolutely nails his colours to the mask. He does take a stand. And our question, I've suggested already, our question is, how did he do it? How did he manage to stand in that way? And I think the answer that chapters 7 to 12 is going to give us over these coming few weeks is that God gives him a vision of the end. Apocalyptic is, is a kind of unveiling. It's as if the curtain gets pulled back and things that are hidden get revealed. Not just about the future, but about spiritual realities that aren't visible to the naked eye, but are visible to the eye of faith. So lying in his bed, in the very first year of King Belshazzar's reign, Daniel has a dream. And I think broadly speaking in the dream, he sees two things. First, he sees the terror of tyrannies to come. Now look at verse 2. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Now to the Old Testament people of God, the, the sea was a place of, of, of threat and chaos. So it's no surprise that it is out of the sea that these four beasts emerge. The first, like a lion, with the wings of an eagle, mighty, dangerous. The second, like a bear, kind of hunched over on its side, ferocious and ravenous, with the, the, the remains of its last victim still visible in its mouth. The third's like a leopard, fast and irresistible. And those four heads, meaning that there's no way you can hide from its gaze and its threat. The fourth is so terrible that no comparison can be made to it. Here's a beast that crushes and devours its victims and then tramples underfoot whatever remains. This is no dream. Uh, this is a nightmare. Uh, a nightmare that you wake from in a sweat with a scream that wakes the rest of the house. But what does it mean? Well, that's exactly the question that Daniel asks in verse 16. And the answer he gets is this. Verse 17. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. Or Daniel presses further, wanting to know about the meaning of the fourth beast, which he senses is different from all the rest. Verse 23. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down 
and crushing it. Well, what do we do with this? Do we try to identify each of the four beasts and associate them with a particular kingdom? Well, there might be some merit in that. Uh, certainly many uh, would see in the first beast, the lion, uh, a representation of the Babylonians. Uh, and you could see how the, the stripping of the wings uh, might represent the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar that we read about back in chapter 4. Because that was the moment, wasn't it? Uh, when having been humbled in that way, he was then enabled to stand and become not a beast anymore, but now like a man with the mind of a man. Uh, we saw that wonderful transformation at that point. And perhaps we could do some of that, and we'll see more of that next week in chapter 8. But, but I don't think that this vision is a, is a vision to decode uh, and step through four kingdoms and say, well, that's done. I think this is much more like a pattern to absorb, showing us what our world is like and always will be like until the end. Because as history unfolds, tyrannical leaders do emerge over and over again. And many have already come and gone, haven't they? Committing terrible violence, whether in war or in torture, from the Medes and the Persians to the Greeks and the Romans, through Hitler and Stalin, Pol Pot, Idi Amin, the list goes on and on. And not infrequently, God's people were on the receiving end. And I think if, if the fourth, fourth beast being different from the others, if it means anything at all, it means that after a whole sequence of such kingdoms coming and going, one final terrible climactic reign of evil will exist as we move towards the very end times. Here's the world that God shows Daniel. And he shows it to him so that neither Daniel nor indeed we, should be surprised. Indeed, in a sense, what is surprising is that today we live in the West through a period of relative calm, through a lack of persecution of Christian believers in the West. That, that's the oddity. Historically, it's persecution that has been the norm. And it still is in so very many parts of the world. Can we see more than this here? Alongside tyrannical leaders, should we see other kinds of beasts as well? What about the, the beasts that emerge from the depths of our own imaginations? I guess in recent days, all sorts of imaginary beasts may have been threatening your sense of well-being, whether that's physical or material or psychological well-being. And you can sense how, just as we might freeze be before a, a four-headed leopard, so we can be cowed into paralysed fear by these imaginary beasts that emerge from within. But Daniel isn't, is he? That's the thing. Daniel isn't cowed into submission. Not at the king's table in chapter 1, despite all of that pressure to conform. Not when faced with the impossible in chapter 2, when he's asked to interpret a dream that he's not even been told the content of. Not when he's forced to break bad news to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, or Belshazzar in chapter 5. And he's not even cowed 
when he faces the furnace in chapter 6. In all of that, as we've seen, Daniel stands firm. Not bowed by the pressure, not overwhelmed by the threat. And you can't help but feeling that you want to know his secret. How does he do this? How does he face these beasts head on? And the secret to his strength is, I think, found in the second part of this vision. So having seen the, the terror of tyrannies to come, notice now a glimpse of the greatest glory. You, you know how in horror movies, um, if you watch horror movies, um, often you, you get a, a kind of a, a peaceful, ordinary scene of, of people going about their ordinary lives when suddenly in the background uh, appears the, the, the mad axe murderer um, and, and the people in the front don't seem to notice um, but you can see, uh, and horribly you wait uh, for awful events uh, to unfold. Well, in Daniel chapter 7, it's kind of all the other way round. Because the foreground is dominated by the beasts, and particularly this force beast with that, that little horn that was more imposing than all the other horns, and which, according to verse 8, had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And then suddenly, in the background as it were, a new scene appears. And not now something horrible, but something so wonderful, so majestic, so glorious, you can't take your eyes off it. Verse 9, thrones are set in place, and the Ancient of Days takes his seat. And it's as if the horn has no idea that the true ruler is taking his rightful place. The ruler with clothing as white as snow and, and hair as white like wool, utterly pure, utterly good. The ruler who has a throne flaming with fire, wheels all ablaze, and, and from whom a river of fire flows out and thousands upon thousands attend him. 10,000 times 10,000 stand before him. And once the court is seated, the books, we're told, are opened. The moment comes, the king of all the earth has taken his seat because the creator is ready to pass judgment on his creation. It is a scene of the final judgment. And the little horn that had been so boastful and so violent and so threatening isn't just silenced but thrown down, the beast slain, evil defeated, and thrown into the blazing fire. It's an image of victory. It's an image of setting aside evil and terror. Beasts that seemed so terrifyingly threatening are mere beasts again, eclipsed by the glorious might of the God who has taken his place upon the throne. And I take it that as Daniel looked, he knew who it was he really needed to be afraid of. James, uh, Jesus, uh, puts it like this in Luke chapter 12. 
I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Who do we really think God is? I wonder if it's possible that we have, along the way somehow, lost sight of his greatness. That somehow or other we've we've turned him into a pocket-sized God. Uh, Rather more convenient. But in doing so, we have also turned him into a God who is weightless and insubstantial. And no wonder then we are paralysed by fears. Because we've lost sight of the one that we should truly reverence. Well, for a time, the beasts dominate the stage of human history. Uh, We're told over in verse 25 that they speak against the Most High. They oppress his holy people. They try to change the set times and laws. And for a while, they are permitted to do so. But not forever. Because in this vision in the night, Daniel not only sees the Ancient of Days taking his seat upon the throne, but Daniel also sees a royal figure arriving. But hold that for a moment. Um, We will look at him uh, in just a second uh, after we've sung. Uh, Sing a song that you may have sung before. Uh, Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. Uh, I wonder if the words of this song might sound slightly different if in our mind's eyes we have a vision of uh, this Lord that we've been reading about in Daniel chapter 7. Let's stand with the music to sing. Well, do please take a seat again. Uh, How are you doing? You're holding in there? Uh, Managing to keep a grasp on the big picture, not getting lost uh, in the detail. Uh, What we're seeing is terrible evil, terrible violence, uh, terrible rulers strutting uh, their time on the world stage, each worse than the one before. On and on it goes. Uh, Until finally, it doesn't last. There is an end. And at the end, we see the king. Do you remember that I I said that of all the chapters in the book of Daniel, the one that the New Testament writers quote most is this one, chapter 7. And we are about to see why. It's there, verse 13. Let me read. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Did you see the combination that exists here? On the one hand, we're told that this figure is one like a son of man. And what that means is like a human being, like a person. But on the other hand, we're told that he comes on the clouds of heaven. And that's something only God does. 
70 times in the Old Testament that clouds are associated with the, the presence or the arrival of God. So he's both fully man and fully God and worshipped by every nation. It's not hard to see, is it, uh, why the writers of the New Testament saw in these words an anticipation, a, a prefiguring of Jesus Christ. But, but it wasn't just them that did it. No, somebody else had borrowed these words. Jesus Christ himself claimed this picture. You remember in his trial before the high priest, and the high priest charged him under oath, saying, tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus replies, you have said it so. But I say to you, all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. I haven't got a complicated bottom line from this chapter for us today. Because I simply want to ask us, do we believe this? Do we believe that the Jesus who submitted himself to that trial, submitted himself to the cross, do we believe that that same Jesus will return on the clouds in glory to judge? Because that is very clearly what he claimed. That was Jesus' point in using as his preferred title throughout his life, the Son of Man. And then finally to use these words from Daniel chapter 7 in his trial before the high priest. He intended us to understand that this climactic victory over evil, this final ushering in of a reign of peace, where God is in his proper place on the throne, that it concerns him, that it will be brought in when he returns in glory. And the question is, do we believe him? At the end of the musical Hamilton, Aaron Burr is a tragic figure. His refusal to take a stand on anything leaves him marginalised and finally foolish. And when you or I shrink the Christian faith down till it becomes really nothing much more than a, than a bit of personal comfort for us in our daily struggles, well then we too have, have somehow made this Christian message too small too insignificant, too insubstantial, to, to the point that it won't even manage to be that personal comfort for us, not really. Now, it needs to be big. The Christian faith needs to concern the return of Christ in glory. It needs to concern at the judgment of the world. It needs to concern Christ taking his proper place as ruler and king for eternity, in a way that means every knee from every nation is bowed before him. Because if it isn't that, then it really isn't anything at all. And I want to ask, if, if, if you're new to the Christian faith, 
Isn't this what you're seeking? Aren't you seeking a God who is, who is big enough to make sense of your life and of our world? And, and if you're pressing on in the Christian faith, isn't this precisely what you need to remember? Because this is how Daniel did it. This is the way that Daniel took his stand. Not by waiting to see which way the wind was blowing, not by trying to ride two horses at once, not being partly in and partly out, but by being fully and utterly persuaded that this vision of the end, this vision of the final and glorious reign of God, this vision that he saw in the night, that it was utterly and completely true. And if you and I are going to be relieved from the terrors that surround us, uh, from the awful realities of the world in which we live. If we're going to be able to face those with courage, then we need a similar conviction. It won't do to partly believe this or to believe a shrunk down version of it. It needs to be a faith in Christ as he presented himself to us, as the one who would return on the clouds in glory. Uh, let me lead us uh, in a prayer. Our Father God, we thank you for these words that present before us uh, the sure and certain rule that Christ will usher in as he returns in glory. Now, thank you that he pointed, it to, to, pointed us to this uh, with his very own words. Uh, please, uh, would you help us uh, to so believe and so commit ourselves uh, to this spiritual reality uh, that we would have courage uh, to stand and stand to your honour and praise. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now we're going to sing a final song, uh, and it's a song that does focus on the glorious reign of the resurrected Christ. Um, let's stand if you'd like to, as we sing.